Welcome to the Translate Your Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Figures, joined as always with my co-host, Dr. Trey Sertish. Trey, last time we talked about, last week, we talked about patient education, and you left us, teased us, with a discussion about uh, exploring how physician education impacts patient education and how the two are, are somewhat intrinsically uh, linked. I'd love for you to just pick us up on, on that conversation thread and, and how you were thinking about it last week to see if we can dive a little bit deeper into this sticky quality of why patients aren't getting a good enough education when they're in the doctor's office, when they're getting a new diagnosis. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good afternoon. First off. Yeah, no, I think that my brain got all abuzzed last week when we started talking about this and we could even do a whole season series on just education in general, whether of the physician or of the patient. But I, I don't think I'm going to say anything that particularly surprises you and perhaps many people who listen, which is like people respond to incentives. And you've brought up the point of incentives of our fee-for-service system. That's kind of how we started this podcast season, which was talking about why is healthcare so screwed up? And it was like, well, if you incentivize doing stuff, you're going to see more done. And doing more doesn't always lead to better outcomes, especially if not everyone has the equal access to those things. So we've, I think we've addressed some of those things. Same thing applies to education, which is if you incentivize people, namely student doctors who will eventually become physicians, how to educate one way like patients namely really not at all, then don't be surprised when they can't do it effectively. And I say this more specifically, meaning that so much of medical school is spent learning the curriculum, which is the chemistry, the biology, the anatomy and physiology, the pathophysiology, the pharmacology, all the stuff that the basics of being a doctor is about. Obviously, we have extended prolonged periods of training in which you're focused on an increasingly subspecialized part of medicine. And that's even thousands and thousands more hours spending time learning and honing your skills. And while medical education does favor what you have addressed before, the hidden curriculum, which is like, how do you talk to people? How do you connect? How do you break bad news? How do you talk about and communicate something in a jargonless manner? That stuff isn't as strongly incentivized for one reason or the other. I'm going to try to say that back to you. So mm -hmm. physicians are a natural byproduct of what we're filtering for and what we're training them to do. There's a lot of explicit training on the job of the physician being, I did a diagnosis. I followed the recipe for what you're supposed to do when a patient shows up with this, what that doesn't prepare physicians, and, and that combined with an incentive structure in our healthcare system for doing fee-for-service medicine is, the, is a, a reimbursement structure that is associated with doing things with the patient, office visits, or procedures, et cetera, et cetera. And so what I hear you saying is that recipe doesn't um, equate to oh, okay, now wade into what can feel like murkier, more subjective waters around patient education and, and stepping. And it's not just patient education. There's other things as well. Am I capturing the heart of what you're trying to illustrate? Yes. Yes. And more. Yes. And there's, you've got to cover all this stuff during medical school. You've got to, and, and a lot of stuff that is very seemingly binary, meaning that you either know it or you don't, and you can test on it or you can't very hard to test on you did this correctly. And there are ways we try and get around it, which is standardized patient encounters. 
electronically, also in person cases, like, which is basically like a such and such person comes to you with such and such problem and you should do what, you know, and, and so we try and educate, we try and build curriculum around it, but it's very challenging, right? For one person to look at another and say, you educated 97 out of a hundred as opposed to grading an anatomy practical and just being like, you got 97 out of a hundred points. And so if incentives are aligned such that the end result doctor is not really being paid to educate and it can be a little murky in terms of how you can grade and assess and evaluate a good communicator, a good educator, that can become extremely hard to standardize then and then institute on uh, in a curriculum on a student body. Does that make more sense? Yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. It makes me think a lot about how we do education for subjective fields, right? We've decided mm -hmm. that being a physician is basically a, it's STEM. We've decided that it's not studying philosophy, that it's not a liberal arts degree, which is much more subjective, right? Like how do you mm -hmm. compare studying, taking organic chem with taking a high level philosophy class and a rhetoric class and, and whether or not you have mastery over rhetorical mm -hmm. methods versus mm -hmm. mastery over organic chemistry formulas. Right. It's a very different thought process, pedagogical process, as my wife would say, around how we think about mastery in those fields. I would challenge the medical field in that like medicine has very conveniently picked a very safe route to go, which is well, we're, what we can measure and what we can like effectively hold wide swaths of students accountable for. Mm -hmm. That's how we're going to approach it. That's fine, but let's not pretend there isn't pedagogical study around taking subjective subjects and trying to apply some sort of uniform standard of competence to those um, subjects. So I acknowledge the challenge with it and I, I, medicine will not get away with being like, how could we yeah. ever? How, Patrick, I just have no idea how right. we would ever do that. Like this, And in some ways this brings me full circle back to this Hippocratic Oath part, back to like, how do, there's a fundamental question that is, is underneath this podcast, which is how do physicians think about their job? And mm -hmm. it's very easy and very convenient to talk about patient empowerment and shared decision-making and all of these things. But I think one of the problems that we're highlighting is that there are too many doctors that just don't think that's their job. They think, well, the things I was, I mean, Patrick, the rubric in, in medical school had mm -hmm. all of these things. I mean, Patrick, I'm sorry that the Hippocratic Oath wasn't really on my rubric. I mean, clearly it wasn't that important, right? Otherwise they would have put it on the rubric, but on my rubric was, do I know my periodic table? And do I know all the, do I know all the bones in the body? And did I ace O Kim? And did I do all right. these other things? That was in the rubric. What wasn't yeah. in the rubric was a relationship with my patient. <laughs> and so, but I think by definition, what you do then is you say that those are nice to haves. These become nice to have traits because these are not things that anyone's telling you are important explicitly, right? Well, you do get, I will push back and say, you do get told, but it's kind of, it's kind of in the ways that you're told, be a good person, be a good person. And why doesn't everybody be, end up just being a good person, right? You need like parents, friends, family, community, peers, all these things that go into not and, and like individual exploration, right? You've got to read broadly, you've got to become educated, you've got to have experience. And hopefully you come out the other end and you're a better person than when you went in. But that's not a guarantee. And it's especially not a guarantee if you're just told be a good person. And I think that's very similar here where you you can be told and it depends upon the medical school and the educator and the curriculum involved. But you're essentially told to be a good physician and good physicians do X, Y and Z. 
But even though that is a little bit more guidance, and again, even though there are attempts to teach this hidden curriculum, attempts to show you a standardized patient encounter and how to communicate and, and emphasize the importance of these things, it's not, it doesn't guarantee that it's going to happen. And frankly, what I see are a lot of physicians who sort of take moral licensing with their soft skills, right, with this hidden curriculum in their patients, which is, I work very hard. I studied all these things. I made a lot of self-sacrifices um, to get where I am now to take care of you. And therefore, perhaps I don't need to hold myself to the standard that I'm the most empathetic, caring individual because I'm doing my job well and excellently. And I hear those physicians and I feel that way sometimes myself. I think we all do as doctors or people we can't be perfect, but I'd push back against that notion, not only within myself, but also in others to say like, that's a, it's a dangerous road. And I actually don't really like a slippery slope argument, just whole, like philosophically, but I do think there's a danger to just saying, oh, well, I do this. So I don't really need to, I can let this go necessarily, because as we've talked about, as you've experienced in your management of you know, your previous practice, as I experienced with my patients now, Patients really care about this. <laughs> they really care about this. And and patients can, care yeah. that you care. Right. 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 They I although I've not read much about that now that I think about it, nor do I have, I think, an informed opinion. I think you're exactly correct. Like patients don't just want you to be giving them lip service. Even if you were saying all the right things following the, the empathetic book your patients really want you to care for them. Like they don't want it to just be words. That's my assumption. And, like you're and you and I have said that, right? We have yeah. talked about this idea of advocacy, right? This idea mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. there is an investment in a re relationship in a specific context of longitudinal, right? Yes. That your physician is treating you like, okay, I'm, it's not transactional. I plan to see you again. And when I see mm -hmm. you again, we're gonna pick up this conversation and you're going to know that I'm really trying to orient around like right. what you're going through. Again, right. back to longitudinal right. over a period of time. Right, and I would also push back on those physicians that not only is it morally dangerous, I mean, that sounds really extreme, but in the context of what we're talking about, that can be morally dubious at the very least to give yourself more license, just be like, yeah, I mean, I do my job well and I don't need to focus on this other stuff because my job's hard. That in itself is problematic, but I think it also just contributes to individual physician burnout because we've talked about a lot of things with Dr. McClelland, you know, that you can, the things that give us a lot of hope and pleasure and joy in medicine are those relationships. And if you are sort of compartmentalizing what your job is to the widgetry, well, I do this thing really well, and that's all I need to worry about. I think you're going to be less satisfied overall, that you're not going to like what it is that you do. You can't just be the nice guy. Like, you still have to do your job. I push, I put that on learners all the time. Is listen, you could be the nicest person in the world. You can be the most empathetic, caring, best communicator ever that I've run into as an aspiring physician. But that's nothing if you can't do the job. Patients still expect you to do your job well. It's just that's why being a doctor is so hard. You have to do the job well, and you've got to be really nice. It's not like a pilot or an astronaut or whatever, which is like, well, I did my job. That's all I got to do. And perhaps I'm generalizing those professions, but the, I don't go talk to my pilot, right? Like I just expect him or her to get the plane where it's going to go. I very much expect that my doctor is going to spend time with my loved one or myself and do their job effectively with as few errors as possible. Yeah, it opens up the question, what is the job of a physician? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it, it connects us back to 
the I'm here to save your ass, not kiss it, right? Yeah, yeah, Which is a, yeah. an answer, a version of an answer yeah, yeah. from the from the provider. And to your point, I think it's an interesting exploration around this idea of if that's your approach to medicine, like medicine will fail you, physician, like medicine will let you down. Because most people don't get into, I I think medicine reminds me a lot of teaching. It reminds me a lot of of other fields where we think of them as like true vocations. Callings. They're callings. Yes. And we really only use those terms for fields where there's an emotional tax walking Mm -hmm. into it. Mm-hmm. Now, it's hard for people to feel any sympathy for, I think, uh, physicians specifically because of how physicians are viewed from a comp- compensatory standpoint. They're viewed as so well paid. But as we see throughout our culture, like, like there's no amount of money that can uh, reimburse you for mis- being miserable. Yes. And, 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 I w- and so I think that's what challenges that mindset for the physician that thinks of, I'm here to save your ass, not kiss it. It's like, then you are setting yourself up to be really unhappy in this profession Mm -hmm. because the thing that brings most people into this profession, a profession that's known as Mm -hmm. a calling, is wanting to make the world a better place or or call it what you want. I want to heal people. I want to have an impact on people. I hear that all the Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. from people in healthcare. They get into this not just because it's going to be a steady paycheck and I'll I'll make good money. I would argue that's not enough, and I'd love to hear your mindset on it. You're obviously a a third-generation physician, so there's other dynamics there, but it feels like there's a, something has to push you through um, medical school. And I think it's really hard for anyone. You and I are both in long-term romantic partnerships. The thing that makes a long-term romantic partnership so uniquely difficult is someone else gets to decide if we suck. <laughs> it, it's not just us looking in the mirror. It's that this other person that we're sharing our life with, who we have vulnerability to, they get to decide whether or not we're meeting our end of the bargain. And that's hard. Mm-hmm. That requires a level of vulnerability and a mm-hmm. level of like self-reflection that is that does not come naturally and does not come easily. It's and so I imagine it's really frustrating as a physician to do everything in your power to try to care for a patient and to have the patient still look at you and go, "Nope, wasn't good enough. You should have done better. You should have been nicer. You shouldn't have made you your sense of humor. I didn't appreciate your sense of humor. It it offended me." Sure. And I, and I would push back on, on that and just say, that's rare. That's rare. Like you've d- addressed this before. First off, the power dichotomy between patient and physician is so great that it takes a very special kind of person. And generally that person you disregard anyways to just yell at you. I mean, it, unless you really deserve it, it's so rare that interaction is going to happen. Now, your patient might feel that way. They may want to yell at you. You may deserve to be yelled at, but the likelihood that it happens on a frequent enough basis such that fear is founded to therefore avoid those interactions altogether or change your behavior, I would push back strongly. And I don't know that's not what you're saying, but any physician that would intimate that, I I just, yeah, I would just push back and say, again, what is the cost? The cost, going back to you're saying, I'm here to save your ass, um, not kiss it. I would just push back and say, oh, well, how is the burnout in emergency medicine treating you? Right. Because it is the highest amongst the specialties. And that's for many reasons than just a, what a T-shirt says. But I would pause it, and I firmly believe that because you're just not forging relationships with patients. And the relationships you're forging, the frequent flyers, as we call them, those aren't the relationships that are, one, effective, and two, really kind of giving back. 
those are the uh, outlier cases of patients and those are really challenging and draining and so if you're concentrating all that on one specialty and you're eroding all the other long-lasting relationships which that specialty itself reports that's a positive that oh you can clock in clock out you leave you don't take your work with you hospital medicines treated very similarly and also has high levels of burnout i just would say hey think about what the cost is to those things think about what it means to not have those relationships and i don't pretend to say this is the key to combating burnout. And I don't pretend to say that this is what medical education should solely focus on. No, far from it. It's just that, like we're saying, like I tell my learners, you got to be good and you've got to be capital G good. You've got to be good at your job and you got to be good with people. And that is the standard. That's, that's not even like excellent. That's like the standard. And then if you want to be excellent, Let's talk about that. Let's talk about what that looks like. But you got to accept those two notions. And most medical schools accept that. It's just that it's hard because like we talked about, the incentives aren't there and it's challenging and very subjective. And we, we're not going to talk about it, but just like how you actually do curriculum in medical education is extremely arcane and complicated. And no one per I'm just saying no one person is saying like, this is what we're doing and so on. Even though if there's a dean, even though there's a, a head honcho and so forth, that's not the person who's executing these things. And so you really have to have a consistent vision in order to see that throughout all threads of a medical education. So it's very challenging. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How do you think about us moving this forward? You brought this mm -hmm. up in the context of patient education and, and how we fail patients in this, what is it, consulted and educated or- Counsel and educated. Counseled and educated. And what do we do, right? Is it, yeah. you and I aren't gonna change how we how we filter physicians to come into, to come into medical school. And it's not necessarily helpful to our listeners, to the patients we're trying to, to mm -hmm. touch and, and help and empower through mm -hmm. this medium. What, mm -hmm. Where do we go from here? I don't know. <laughs> I think about it a lot. I think about it a lot. I don't mean to just throw my hands up and stuff, but I think that it is just so complex. And you even touched upon it briefly there, which is, which I haven't even addressed, which is what are the traits before you even get to medical school? What are the traits that you're favoring? Generally, it's an ability to handle the content that is covered in medical school. So, to be able to handle the huge amount of information at the pace in which it comes, that's sort of the number one directive, the prime directive, if you hmm. will. And then there are other things. And increasingly, medical schools are trying to focus on, yeah, I mean, what is your proclivity to research? What is What are your humanistic traits? What drives you outside of medicine, both for wellness reasons and balance of your life? an interest in trying to get a whole doctor because again a lot of people many people smarter than i have been thinking about this problem a long time and so you ask like well what do we go next and i just don't know i just don't know i think that for me when i just bring it down to what do i do on a day-to-day -day basis is number one have standards just like going back to that be a good person it's not enough to just tell somebody be a good person you have to have standards society has a standard your community has a standard the place you work has a standard and I think if you're consistent with that standard, which is you gotta be good at your job and a good person, whatever that looks like to you, if you can define those for your learners and then model them in your own practice, recognize when you fail to meet that standard, 
push them still when they don't meet that standard to meet that threshold or exceed it. And, and people feel safe enough to fail in that system. Honestly, I feel like that no matter what you're teaching, people will grow. And that's really all you're looking for because people don't finish medical school done. They're barely started. So you really just want to, the way I think about it is like, I talk about all the time, build a scaffold, something that you can build onto for the rest of your career. A perfect practice is what I talk about. Like practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. And so you really have to find that perfect practice. And that's the same thing with what is a good doctor. So I don't know. That's how I am thinking about it anyways. That's helpful. I'll add to this. Mm -hmm. I think we're giving the physician way too much to do. And I think on two fronts, I think physicians put too much pressure on themselves while also not utilizing the resources around them. If I could pick the number one sin that I saw for the physicians that I worked with, it is a, I've never met so many people that all share the same allergy. And that's, you would think that delegating was going to cause them to drop dead mm -hmm. on the spot. That mm -hmm. asking someone to do something that in their minds they could do. I pick on physicians too much because I, I have so many good physician friends where it's, I've never heard in one breath um, how much they have to do and how little they're willing to give other people to do right. all in one sentence. It's like, I've got way too much to do. I've, I'm being asked to do too much. Okay, we should give that some of this to other people. How no. dare you? How That's dare right. You? <laughs> and, it, and a lot of it came back to from this, I, I think the biggest curse we inflict on the average physician is 100% success. Nothing can be done worse than the way the physician would do it because everything is so important and missing something is so critical when you're a physician. Mm -hmm. So giving something that you'll do 100% to an MA that'll do it 97% means there's a 3% increased risk to the patient, increase that, that a stat lab doesn't get um, flagged mm -hmm. appropriately, mm -hmm. that a phone mm -hmm. call doesn't get made, that something that's super important. Mm -hmm. But that's a problem we can fix. The problem we can't fix is a physician being overburdened and cutting corners and not giving the sort of care they want to give because they've oversaturated themselves and haven't surrounded themselves with the right processes mm -hmm. to ensure consistent results. Back to the pilot example, right? Pilots are supposed to do only what the pilots have to do and they're surrounded with a team and have consistent processes to make sure that there's consistent results. If we didn't have good processes and good support for pilots, we'd have a lot more plane crashes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so that's on one hand. On the other hand is we do not do a good job of setting patient expectations that the physician is not the only person you're going to work with. Mm -hmm. I can't count the number of times that physicians or that patients in the practice that I worked at basically refused to have a conversation with anyone that wasn't the doctor. Like as far as they're concerned, the, our 40 provider medical practice with 200 employees had one person that worked at that practice, their doctor. Mm -hmm. Would you like to see another physician? No. Would you like to talk to the advanced practitioner that your physician works with? No. Would you like to maybe talk to the MA? No. I'll just wait for my doctor to call me back. And that's an exaggeration. But it resonates. It resonates. And so doing a better job up front in teaching patients that, hey, we have a system. Mm -hmm. Your relationship is as much with the system that surrounds your mm -hmm. physician as it is with your individual physician. And hospital systems actually do this fairly well. And Dr. McClellan, if she were here, could probably talk to us about mm -hmm. how the large system that she works with 
does, I think, a good job and is, is nationally known for doing a good job of having a brand that has some awareness around, hey, your relationship isn't just with this physician, it's with this larger healthcare entity that has resources, tools, pathways, processes, these other things that you can plug into. Because I think with those two things combined, the answer to patient education may not be asking the physician to do more, especially with the constraints that you outline. I think it is, I think the sin of the physician is mm-hmm. that the physician is the general, the physician is the leader, the physician has to prioritize these things. But what any physician that's listening to this podcast knows is when I say the patient has to be better educated, the reflexive response that every physician feels mm-hmm. is, okay, I need to do that. I have to go and, mm-hmm. and develop education. I didn't say that. I said the patient has to get educated. I didn't say you had to do it. Somebody mm-hmm. has to do it. You need to hold someone accountable Mm-hmm. doing it. You need to hire a Maggie Teleska to come into your practice and do a support group and empower mm-hmm. people. There's all of these wonderful tools out there in the universe. The mm-hmm. sin is that we are not surfacing them or prioritizing them for patients, even though we have examples of them having positive impacts on patient care. And I'm going to pose it as that that this should be its own episode too. Like, <laughs> basically, I mean, seriously, because you're what you're talking about is the pros and cons of the decentralization of the position which I have strong opinions both ways. I think that the large institution that you have not named that Dr. McClellan works for perhaps has doctors' interests in mind. I would say they don't. I would say that they have the bottom line in mind, and that's why Dr. McClellan feels as torn as she does, because, yes, they have decentralized physicians in that group to take away power from them, which takes away leverage, which takes away their ability to negotiate that they're seeing too many patients, that they're doing too many things, that they're tasked, with all the notes and the things that contribute to burnout that she enumerated. And so I think that, yes, in theory, what you're saying could work well, but largely it relegates that power because power's got to go somewhere. Power goes to someone else who's not in charge of the patient's care and can't make an active decision. As much as I love you, you're an administrator at heart, you're a manager at heart, that's where you come from. And it gives you incredible talent and skills to see things that physicians, myself included, could never see about a practice. Does that mean you should make core decisions and lead about what care does? And you recognize that. We talk about that all the time. That's why we're an effective team, but you can't always guarantee an effective team. And I think that's from both the physician standpoint, the patient standpoint, the MA standpoint, the administrator standpoint, like everybody in the thing. That's why teams are so valuable. We value them in sports. We value them in countries, right? As nation states, like we value teams just almost more than anything, a family unit is a team. And those who work really well, we just are in awe of at times and we wanna be a part of that team. And it's the same thing here. And so I would love, love, love to talk about just the debate of, do we decentralize the power of the physician and therefore their responsibilities? And what are the pros and cons of that? Because they're definite pros like you're outlining, but they're absolutely cons like Dr. McClellan and I at times feel and experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's well said. If we can, if you and I can find a way to have that conversation in a way that is deeply insightful for our <laughs> patient listener or it helps our, our yes. listener in some way, that might be, Fair. you and I have plenty of these conversations Fair. offline, but I, I absolutely, I think that, you know, medicine 
suffers from a, the great man problem, right? Yeah. Every something I really enjoy about studying small businesses and startups mm -hmm. is that so so many startups have what's called the founder's dilemma, and that is mm -hmm. the thing that makes your startup wonderful, which mm -hmm. is your founder, eventually becomes the thing that caps your startup, which mm -hmm. is the, the your founder's limitations become right. your limitations as a startup because the founder often does not do or the founder gets to a point where right. they have to effectively replace their own imperfections, limitations, because it caps the ability for the business to function at a high level. And I think Absolutely. that is the exact same thing that goes on with physicians. When you have four patients that you're managing, it's super easy to be all things to all people. When you have 2,000, exactly. you, exactly. you need structure, you need process. Absolutely, you should retain the power, but you also have the responsibility mm -hmm. with that power. And back to bring it full circle, this is the thing that leads people to say, save your ass, not kiss it, right? I'm doing the mm -hmm. best I can. Right. I'm burned out. I'm. It, you end up in this victimization place, but really that's a cover for the fact that it's like, look, you know you're not doing everything you should. We should have better processes. You need to give up right. individual control Right. to a system that you believe in. And if you want to critique the system, right. but you need to be responsible for building a system that can cover for you when you're not here. Because this is the other thing. How many physicians post-retirement, post-transition, leave their patients in the lurch because we've been mm -hmm. on a great man or great woman way of, right. of practicing and not properly teaching, properly empowering beyond the physician's ability to just keep track of everything that needs to happen for that patient. A thousand percent. And again, that's why I love this because I can argue both sides because I agree you and you know this, but the listener doesn't is that I favor moving towards a decentralized team, recognizing everybody's role within that team, of course, because you're exactly correct. You can't be an effective advocate. You can't be an effective physician if you're doing all these things at once. And I think that most doctors feel that and they rail against it, but they're what they rail against is just sort of externalizing their emotions. Mm -hmm. And I try and encourage them as I do myself is that you gotta lean in. You gotta say, well, I don't like the system that it is. I do need to delegate. Why don't I participate in that delegation process? Why don't I participate in the creation of that team, the expansion of that team in any way that I can? Hard at a gigantic multi-state institution, it is challenging. But again, the power of the physician, no matter what, is so great that it gives you at least some modicum of leverage to, to help your little microcosm or larger if you decide to continue going through it. Physician's biggest mistakes amongst many in the preceding decades to now was just seeding authority all over the place just being like i'm not going to do that i'm not going to do that i'm not going to participate in that because i have so much to do right so many expectations and you can't be upset and i tell this all the time to physicians who are so upset with the systems like, listen like you had the most power of anyone here to decide what the system would become you, there are no excuses like there no one almost no other profession uh, has that degree of power and continues to and so use that, leverage that and that passion that you have clearly for the outcome that you did want, leverage that into something that you can affect. We don't get that many opportunities in, pre I, I, I really struggle to think of another opportunity. The government is really the only other thing that has as much power to like determine like you do this now. And, but anyways, I'm fascinated by this and I know we got a little bit off 
for medical education per se and how it gets to patient education but this is what feeds into it um, yeah really i think does. it's all i think it's all related so the takeaway for you listener yeah. is understand that as trey and i value patient education we also think that can come from and should come from places that aren't specifically the physician especially with trey's mm-hmm. good feedback that there are a lot of reasons why you're physician is not well set up to be the end-all be-all for providing you the patient education that Mm. you probably deserve. I think it's a great place for us to wrap up uh, today. Trey, always a ton of fun. Uh, I always learn a lot when we get a chance to talk about these things. As always, listener, I'm going to ask you to rate us on whatever podcast app you're following us on. And if you're not following us, you should follow us. Check us out on YouTube. Check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever it is you use to listen to your podcasts. And uh, you can always go and visit us at translateyourdoctor.com. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can email us at translateyourdoctor at gmail.com. And we will catch up with you next week. Thanks, Trey. Thank you.